Hey everyone, it's Chad. Welcome back to Mission Daily. We have a giveaway for everyone that enters. You can win a prize at mission.org slash books. Steph, what can people win? Books that you love. Do you want to read like a CEO? Chad has a bookshelf that probably has, I was actually calculating in my head how much you've probably spent on books because there's so many in our studio. I'd say there's probably 500 here. So a fraction. You, this is, you don't even know about the hidden libraries oh, I have stored oh in my parents' garage. Oh, I forgot about that. Well, anyways, yeah. it's called Read Like a CEO because we are taking books off of Chad's bookshelf and we are putting it in a giveaway. Books are the best investment in yourself. And the reason why we wanted to do this giveaway, I recently started paying myself a salary. Yay, woo! And which is a major milestone. And I wanted to immediately give back to everyone out there that's listening that has helped us get where we're at. And it's really exciting. So this is my way of saying thank you to the listeners. So at mission.org slash books, uh, I picked out a number of books from my bookshelf and the top 30 people who enter. And you can see how to get more entries, all that stuff at mission.org slash books. Uh, but the top 30 people who enter get to pick one book from this list and I'll mail you a physical copy. I'll buy it. The next 15 get three books. So if you're in the top 15, you get three books from the list, your picks. And if you're in the top five, you get five books each. So this is pretty cool. And you can get more entries for every single email subscriber you refer. Yep. And stay tuned for the next little ad segment because we will tell you why Chad picked some of these books oh, to get you excited. And mission.org slash books, go there, enter. And everyone who enters is going to get a copy of 100 Business Ideas. That's an ebook we created with 100 ideas to start making more money and yeah, maybe even start a business this weekend. Yep. So enter the giveaway and good luck. May good. the odds be ever in your favor. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I'm Jeffrey Wright, and you're listening to Mission Daily. Selected as best of 2018 by Apple, Mission Daily is the number one podcast for accelerated learning. Hey, everyone, this is Chad, and today's guest is Doug Merritt. Doug is the CEO of Splunk. Splunk is a fascinating company that is working in machine learning and artificial intelligence, big data, they're helping companies create products that do good around the world. So what do I mean by that? I mean that most organizations right now are sitting on a treasure trove of data. However, they can't mine all the value for their shareholders, for their customers, everyone that their business impacts and affects in the world. And what Splunk does is they allow these organizations to take that data, monetize it, and turn it into good works. This is really exciting for us, and it's really exciting for the world as a whole. Case in point, there is one company that they've worked with specifically where they took data from, I think, over, it was something like uh, close to 80 or 90 years old, and they helped that company turn that data into actionable insights that helped them reduce waste, cut costs, and basically expand opportunities for their employees and shareholders. So. If you want business life to be better, if you want work to feel smarter and more exciting, you know, if you want more opportunities for yourself and your coworkers, you want companies like Splunk to exist. And in this interview with Doug, he is the CEO of Splunk. He has a fascinating career in technology and he is the one who has some of the most interesting insights to share about the company, about the market, 
And I think that his philosophies on leadership are very, very uh, prescient, to say the least. So without further ado, please welcome our guest, Doug Merritt. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Mission Daily. And we have a very special guest in studio today. Doug, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Chad. Very happy to be here. I am excited we started recording. So I can be bad at this sometimes (laughs) where I just keep talking and talking with whoever's here. And thankfully, we have Steph, uh, my wife and co-founder, who said, stop. This is really good. Start recording. So a couple of the things we were talking about, let's start with the first one. How'd you get interested in nature and biology? You know, looking on the outside, you're a business guy. Why are you interested in nature or biology? Uh, so I actually started through college. Actually, I was told by my mom from an early age, I was going to be a doctor. Okay. Because uh, her father was a successful entrepreneur and she saw him gone all the time. And she figured uh, a doctor would have normal structured hours and a more sane life. So I was Dr. Dougie all the way until sophomore year in college where I decided that's not going to be interesting enough for me. I actually took the summer off and followed a couple of my friends' parents who are doctors around and try to get a feel for what was it like to be a doctor. And it, while it's super important, right. a critical uh, profession, it's like, yeah, I'm not so sure that that the amount of paperwork and repetitiveness would, would have me that interested. But I spent a lot of time in high school and early college on bio and biochem and genetics and kind of classic courses that that you need to ever get to in a medical school. Sure. And was this at UC Berkeley or where were you studying at? at it's, I started at UC Berkeley. And after a year and a half back in the late 80s uh, or early 80s, UC Berkeley was so impacted that it was difficult to get any of the uh, specialty classes. Okay. So I was taking fascinating classes on poli sci and rhetoric and political economies, but was not getting my core medical fulfillment classes. So I transferred to UOP for a semester. Apparently, they had a great dental school, and that way I could get caught up with all the core bio, biochem, uh, genetics. And after that, that spring semester is when I went out for the summer and came back and decided I wanted to switch to business. So, what happened that summer? What were the was the big catalyst? Because that's uh, a pretty big paradigm shift. Yeah, it was, and it was hard to actually. It, it was amazing how tentative I felt about having that conversation with my mom, because it had been a dec, you know, more than a decade of this sure. is what you should do. I just asked a ton of questions. Right. Um, one was an uh, ophthalmologist, a surgeon, ophthalmologist surgeon down in Southern California. One was an orthopedic surgeon up in the Seattle, Oregon area, and really try to figure out what's your day in life like? like if mm-hmm. you had to do it all over again, would you still do this? What do you like and don't like about your profession? What do you think is going to go over the next 10 to 20 years? While they they loved being doctors and they, they were happy with their career choice, a lot of the advice that they gave centered around the amount of regulation that they were facing, the amount of patient time that they actually had, and their ability or inability to keep up with all the changes. Um, and when I really started contemplating, all right, so I'm going to have at least another 10 years from here right. before I begin to practice. They're already feeling this way in 1984-85. Now, what's it going to be like in 1995-2000? Sure. And I'm and, sure back in those days, too, they were probably servicing maybe 15 patients a day, the average general care practitioner. And today, it's, I think, closer to 20, 25 sometimes. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if anything's getting better in yeah. medicine right now. That's really exciting because that reminds me when I was thinking about getting a PhD, I uh, applied a thought experiment. It seems pretty similar where I just went around to recent graduates and decided, were they happy? Were they glad they, they chose this? And I think that that type of mindset of looking before you leap is really underrated because there's a lot of 
noise about certain topics and industries, but when you actually check them out, it's a very different thing. So could you talk about, that seems like a really smart philosophy to apply in business, the idea of checking things out before you decide. How have you done that in your career outside of the, uh, the college and the major decision? Yeah, it's, um, I'm just such a curious person that I tell my kids, I've got a almost 18 year old, a 15 year old and a twin six year olds. And my number one advice is just find a way to love to learn, mm-hmm. um, especially with where we're going with computing technology. And if, if you don't love learning, it's going to be, it's gonna be rough. Yeah. L- less exciting of a life. Yeah. Um, and, and my career has actually followed that as I've, I've had a completely non-traditional career. I've gone from a computer programmer uh, right out of school at what's now Accenture. So more custom programming mm-hmm. uh, to pre-sales, sales, marketing, consulting, and engineering management, in addition to now a couple of CEO stints. This is my third at at Splunk. So a really varied career. And a lot of that, some of those were career advancements. Some of them were title demotions as I moved from one domain or category to another. But what drove me was, what do I have to learn next? Mm -hmm. what, What am I most excited about? I'm very competency driven. So how do I understand the domain and the landscape as well as I possibly can? And the opportunity to see, I've been consistent in high tech since I graduated from school, but the opportunity to see high tech from a 360 view uh, from everything involved with creating the product all the way through to servicing or retiring the product has been phenomenal. And and it probably wouldn't be the recommended career advice that lots of people would give you. It's, you know, if you want to be as senior as you possibly can be, you know, enter in sales and go all the way up to the hierarchy of sales. And maybe <laughs> you can jump over to the CEO seat or sure. the same thing with engineering or finance. Um, but I've really, really enjoyed the variety of getting to see multiple different aspects of the industry. And one of the things you mentioned there, I think is fascinating, is the idea that you're going to take a title demotion at certain companies that are growing at a certain pace or of a certain stature. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because I feel like a title demotion is what often stops a lot of people or aspiring executives from making progress quickly in their career. So how did you think about taking a title demotion for some of these roles? Yeah, it's, uh, I've got this other view that the ego is is a rough thing. You yeah. got to find a way to mitigate the ego. And that's usually the ego talking. Sure. That uh, how, what, how will people perceive me or how I perceive myself if right. I go from VP to manager, from CEO to director. But if you, if you really value learning and, and you're trying to play the long game, then that variety actually winds up helping you over time. It may, it may not sub-optimize in the immediate game though. But I think we all have a choice on what are we trying to do in our life? And there are people I know who their number one goal was to be retired by 40 or 45 or 50 or earlier. Um, and there's a different set of choices you'll make um, versus sure. I, I, if I am done working at 70, 75, 80, I'll be shocked. It's just, I don't, I love being involved in creating things and working with other people. And I may again, change what I do at 60, 70 or 80, but I just, I'd be surprised if I'm just vacationing or staying at home or so that's been more my guide is being a lifelong learner and being super curious about things. How do I keep that fire alive? Yeah. And I think that that is the starting point and it's the foundation of any great accomplishment is if you're not personally excited about it, if you don't get up in the morning, if you're not excited about learning everything in the industry, if you're significant other isn't stopping you from reading late at night about industry materials or whatever, maybe you're in the wrong industry. So talk to me a little bit about learning. How do you view your development and 
Are you primarily reading books? Is it podcasts, audiobooks, industry magazines? What, what is it? So it, I was a voracious reader up until probably 10 years ago. When we were kids, my mom wouldn't allow us to watch TV, which I would guess would be the internet and games of today. Yeah. And so my escape was reading. And I probably cons- read at least one or two books a week. Mm-hmm. As I got more and more busy with career and with the kids and with life overall, I've now switched over the past five to seven years to mostly podcasts. Um, or I'll just find an interesting topic on YouTube and sure. search and watch a video on something. So trying to get a little bit more condensed. But I usually, I go back and forth between how do I get context and general knowledge about something with how do I actually dive in and begin to to do that thing. Sure. Um, that competency orientation is I'm a very experiential learner. I've got to do to definitely really cement that learning. I'm the same way. So I need some type of uh, tactile, real world feedback. The quicker I can get that, I feel like the faster I can learn. And it's um, seeking out those situations is tough, but uh, I feel like you can do it now with a lot of the YouTube videos, podcasts, things like that. So how do you think about podcasts and YouTube and audio content? For me, I think that they're pretty close to like augmented reality that works because you can do many other things. Do you think that that we're going to experience a boom in audio content and video content? Maybe we already are. What do you think the future of that content is? Yeah, I mean, it, my my sense is we are experiencing boom. Almost everyone I know listens to sure their content, gets their content either through audiobooks, podcasts, etc. Um, and I I agree with you, Chad. It's we're all learning to be better multitaskers right. um, and trying to fit something like exercise in is always important to me. And so hopping on a life cycle or a Peloton and listening to a podcast is kills. It's powerful. It's right? super powerful. And it, for me that because I'm so active, it actually cements the learning better. If I'm just sitting, my mind can wander and I won't get as I think as deep of information um, than if I'm act, doing something active. I and mean, podcasts are so much easier for that. When I go to YouTube, I wind up because I'm usually doing something, I don't look at the video as much. I use it sure. as an audio source, even though there's a video playing. But So one of my mentors slash role models I know from distance is uh, Mark Andreessen. And Mark has this saying about podcasts and audio content where he's you know, doing his thing where he talks really fast. And he's talking about how in the olden days, just try to add up the cost of having to hire that expert, that person, that CEO, that billionaire potentially, and have them talk to you for an hour. It just never happened. It's, it's, never so, it's so priceless. So the fact that this is free or you know subsidized by sponsors, it's incredible. So I think it's really important for everybody to remember that this opportunity has not existed maybe ever before in the history of the world. So it's a massive opportunity. And that brings me to an interesting story that you were talking about before the podcast, which was you got one of your companies started through an angel check through Netscape. So would you mind telling that story? Yeah, it's a... Uh... Back in the mid-90s, yeah. <clears throat> 1995, 96, when the internet was just getting going, Netscape had just gone public and uh, had this idea that given we were all people-driven industries going forward and intellectual property was the core of most businesses, sure. and most ERP systems were focused on financial capital management, what would happen if you created some type of a system that you could reach individuals, managers, and senior execs 
through this browser thing. What would happen if you created a, a system that would help people get insight and visibility into the pipeline of, of talent, people within the organization, the projects they're working on, their ultimate career development, um, and eventually where they might even cycle out of an organization. And so created a bunch of mock-ups and um, initial concepts for that. And it was a little bit harder to raise money in the mid-90s before the true internet boom happened than today. The whole angel network wasn't that well established. Sure. Uh, and ran into someone that knew one of the early guys at Netscape and started pitching the idea, knowing how rapidly they were growing and how important talent was. Um, and somehow we convinced them and a handful of other companies to write us a check for future software <laughs> that was going to be a cloud service back before anyone really understood what cloud was going to be. And without that, we would have never had the chance to get the company off the ground. And were you by yourself that at that point? Were you trying to build a founding team? What, what else was going on? Yeah, it's uh, a lot like you and Steph. Um, <laughs> I uh, pitched my ex-wife on the idea and we started working together and, and then actually uh, started to convince a few people that we knew in the network to chip in and help as well and Very uh, cool. kind of grew organically. Uh, so I love that because uh, so one of my favorite authors, Nassim Taleb, you know, not so nice on Twitter. I know a lot of people are listening to this. Man, that guy is like really mean. His books are great. So you know, check out his books. But he is fond of saying that you can't micro BS. You can macro BS all day long. But when it comes down to asking friends, family members, or other businesses for money, you have to have everything perfect. It's really that hard. So I would love for you to talk about maybe why people want to start at that local level and you know convince one business to buy what doesn't exist yet or maybe convince friends and family members to chip in i feel like that's an important reality check that many entrepreneurs and many business owners need to seek out do you feel the same or yeah i mean i think going back to the very very beginning of the conversation we had before we started life is a very emergent chaotic and tumultuous reality mm -hmm. um, evolution is not linear and it's not pretty often. I mean, I think when you go to lean startup and agile development and so many of the different books and practices on how do you get as close to a problem as possible? And then sure. how do you give yourself the freedom and flexibility to try as many variants as possible to see which ones are going to pay off? That that if you want an effective idea, that degree of openness, learning orientation and experimentation is critical. Yeah. And I think on that, you can't BS micro getting in front of people that you know and they're willing to actually spend a little bit of time with you and double, triple, quadruple click into an idea. I don't know how else to to actually make effective iterative progress and eventually either realize that you're on a dead end that doesn't make sense or do the pivots you need to so you can find some degree of success. Sure. And because for an early stage business, you have to be running a huge number of experiments. You're not going to be bringing the team in on all of them, but you do have to be continually running these experiments to get new data, new information, figure out novel solutions. So how, how are you thinking about that at Splunk today? Are you running many different experiments? Do you try to cap them? I know it can be many entrepreneurs can get distracted easily. How are you thinking about that? Now there's a, I was going to say, even in medium and big businesses, I think it's important. And I think where businesses start to go off the rails is when there's too many people that aren't close enough to customers mm -hmm. and don't understand what how, why people value what they mm -hmm. currently do and have the opportunity and flexibility to run those experiments. Now, I, mean, I think when people think about experiments, they think about big, high-risk experiments. 
And those need some degree of oversight, just like uh, you raising money for your cool podcast adventure. Sure. Someone doesn't say, here's $100 million, Chad, go do something. They give you pieces at a time and, and start to see how are you operating, what kind of success but you're having. if they want to, they can email me. Right? Yeah, like if SoftBank's care. out there listening, you know, do, do your thing. <laughs> I'm just, just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> SoftBank has the money. <laughs> um, so within Splunk, we've got one of the sayings that we have is we're a duocracy. Mm-hmm. We've got a couple of these fun Splunkisms. And that is trying to emphasize the fact that every single of our 4,500 plus employees has got the opportunity and that we would like them to run experiments. And those experiments are in their control. You know, how do I tune my sales approach with these different accounts. You know, that you own your own business as a sales person. Um, how do I tweak this marketing campaign a little bit? That that has to happen on a consistent basis. Sure. And then we've got more formal structures on a budgeting and portfolio approach to encourage people to, you know, go grab three, four people and actually start something brand new outside the fold of Splunk. And then as as more resources get consumed and you pass different gates, a lot like many other companies out there, we've got a little bit more oversight on how do we make sure that we aren't getting too wide without going deep enough to make our customers successful. And that's something that's not such a far jump away from what our customers care about that that even if it's a great idea, it probably wouldn't be successful within Splunk because of that huge gulf of switching from a, a huge array of departments away from where we sit today. Sure. And so it sounds like you're looking to build or you've already built, obviously, a culture of entrepreneurship where people are, they can take some small risks, maybe make some smaller bets. You're an intra- I mean, you're an entrepreneur, but you're also an entrepreneur because when you started at Splunk, you know, you didn't have the CEO role. You rose to that. And could you talk a little bit about your view on being entrepreneurial inside a company? I, I view it as super similar to yeah. entrepreneurial outside of a company. Um, it's capital allocation at the end of the day, right? You're just is. allocating resources for somebody else, maybe not just yourself. But yep. Yeah. It's going back to what we were talking about earlier. Who can you get around you that that is willing to listen to you and believe in what you want to do sure. and wants to join you within a company or outside the company? It's the same type of a problem of getting crisp enough on your idea that you can articulate it. You can influence a few other folks to join the ranks. And that goes all the way up to how do I get more budget for this? And people try and compare contrast inside versus outside of companies. Um, I think it's it's not as different as people perceive it to be. It is hard to get people's attention. Right. It's hard to get them to want to part with something important to them, capital or time or- The way uh, things have been done yep. is super, super tough. Yep. So are there any stories from your career early on where you maybe had to go up against some people who did not want things to change and where you successfully persuaded them in a way that allowed you to remain colleagues and friends and, you know, keep a good working relationship, but you got your, you know, you achieved the vision or I don't want to say you got your way because that sounds petty, but how did you influence an organization early on in your career? Well, one of the most fun stories on this or kind of unusual uh, was my time at SAP where I was brought in at a time of huge change at SAP where we had a brand new president of technology, this guy, Shai Agassi, who's just a brilliant, brilliant person. And he wanted a lot of experiments being run. Um, and he saddled me with the responsibility of how do we change the development culture and development approach within SAP? So not the most exciting outward facing job, 
but running out of Palo Alto and trying to influence a mostly German development team, but developers scattered all over the world on how should we think about development as we go into 2010, 2015? How much is it going to change from where we were at SAP at 2004, 2005? Um, and one of the tasks that the CEO, Henning Kagerman, threw my way was security is really gosh darn important. Microsoft had just had some big security vulnerability exposed in Windows and SAP had so far been lily clean. And as the development operations person, make sure we're batting down everywhere and how much we really spend on security. Um, And I tasked my teams with that's a, yeah, let's explore that. Let's keep an open mind on what opportunities are there versus just costs on addressing the security vulnerabilities. And what came back as we looked at Microsoft and a whole host of other companies and what they're spending on security was it could be a bottomless pit and security was a super dynamic area. Mm-hmm. And what happens, what would happen if we create a business on one of the core areas that companies were concerned with in the security space where we could generate revenue and from that revenue, make sure there's enough funds to fill existing security needs and security gaps. And so uh, from a relatively simple task of how much should we spend on product security, we went up birthing a governance risk and compliance division focused on assuring that the risk and compliance departments within finance had a solution, a modern effective solution in the time when Sarbanes-Oxley was starting to rear its head and a a bunch of other distractions were weighing on these uh, team's shoulders that ultimately became almost a billion dollar division within SAP. Wow. That didn't happen overnight though. Could you give us maybe, you know, not a full timeline, but just a rough estimate of how long that took to make happen? Yeah, it was probably, if I go back and think, it was probably six months to do all the primary research to understand the landscape of security and to get the that inkling of, huh, there could be a product opportunity here. Because we were diligently trying to fulfill the core request of how much we spend on product security within the development teams. And that's when we hit on GRC, governance, risk, and compliance as an opportunity area. And then another six months to really flesh out the business plan. Of, mm-hmm. So what would we attack and why would we attack that? And who would be our buyer? And how does that buyer relate to the current buyers within the sales force that the sales force typically addresses within SAP? And through that, we actually serviced a couple of companies that we could potentially purchase that could jumpstart the division. So that uh, probably a year end end before we got approval to go do something. And within three months of that approval, I think we made our first acquisition. Wow. Um, so what, once we had enough visibility on what we thought we want to do and sure. enough support from our CEO through Shy and through the rest of the organization, it began to move pretty quickly. But I think that year of really understanding the landscape, the players, the pain that buyers had, the potential opportunity, how how we'd uniquely address it, what assets do we have as a company that could help accelerate our success was worth its weight in gold as far as execution capability on the other side. Sure. And let's shift gears and talk about Splunk a little bit. So for somebody that's listening, we have a lot of executives out there that listen to our uh, podcast, whether it's marketing trends or IT visionaries. What would you say to the executive that has maybe heard of Splunk? Maybe they've seen your advertisements in the Wall Street Journal. Those look great. I think those are great spots. But what would you say to the executive that has no idea who Splunk is, what you do, or why? We live in an era today where data holds a potential to help organizations radically rethink the value that they're driving to their customers um, and actually turn data into doing. That's been a problem for 
decades of, you know, when I know that there's data in my ERP systems or transactive systems, how do I take advantage of it? Uh, and now, because everything is censored, man, we're not, don't just have the historical data at rest that we've always had, but you're now adding petabytes of data per day for most organizations that they could tap. We have the real opportunity to have this very emergent sense and respond opportunity as organizations or individuals. And the challenge remains the same. What data do I pay attention to? What gold nuggets are sitting within that data? How do I turn data or information into insights, into actions, into outcomes within my organization? Um, and Splunk is one of the organizations out there that has spent over 15 years now building up infrastructure, insights, usability, and know-how to help organizations go from I don't know what to do with this big data trend to let me go attack these three really important problems within my organization that can help me compete better, serve my customers better, serve my employees better, increase my product velocity, whatever the core problem might be. Are there any favorite customer success or, yeah, I mean, customer success would be the best if you can share any of those stories. Any favorites come to mind? We are fortunate enough to have over 17,000 customers, and uh, there are so many amazing use cases. Let me go a little bit unexpected sure. area, Please um, do. more of the not-for-profit not for vein, because data, I think, can help company corporations and businesses, but it also has amazing potential to help the problems around us in society. Sure. And the commonality I see within an organization, within a company that's trying to really harness their data versus a not-for-profit is not that dissimilar. There are usually hundreds of thousands of silos of data. For many not, not-for-profits, it's actually even more vexing because so much of the data they want to take advantage of isn't within their four walls. It's sitting in different government repositories and across different corporations they want to tap. There's a company called the Global Emancipation Network that is focused on, I think, a pretty important topic around human trafficking and some of the abuses that can happen globally with this ridiculously horrible um, activity that's, that's rampant still, outside still, of the, if you haven't left the US yet. Um, so I've spent time in Iraq, Egypt um, with the military, and these are horrendous, horrendous problems. Yeah. It, and 2019, and where we live, it's easy to think that it's not a worldwide issue, but it, it is. is. Yeah. And, and their problem is these thousands of distributed data silos and how do they get any type of visibility on who the victims might be and who the perpetrators are and what the root cause is. And we've partnered with, with uh, Global Emancipation Network for almost two years now. And the impacts that they're starting to see are pretty profound as they're tapping into uh, probably a, a thousand plus different data sources and have started to really hone in on less than a hundred key origination points sure. that they could do their job effectively working with authorities around the world, we could see some meaningful results from. That's really exciting. And I think that because at the end of the day with really skilled technical or maybe soft skilled uh, employees and talent in Silicon Valley, many of these people, they have their pick of where to work, right? And every single person I talk to at the end of the day, they're looking for a mission. They're looking for something that is going to move way past marketing and into that improving things in the real world domain. You know, what are your thoughts on technology and business for good? I know this can be kind of a controversial topic for some people, but should business, does business have a responsibility to do good in the world? What are your thoughts? Whether they should, I think that we can. Sure. And therefore for organizations where it's authentic, you absolutely should lean in. And and I love business for good as your descriptor, Chad, because we <laughs> call our our social well-being org Splunk for good. And it has that at the 
core mission of how a lot like Splunk, how can you use data for beneficial purpose around the world? Right. Um, and those lines between business and what's good for society blend and blur so quickly. Most, as you said, most employees today really want purpose and providing them with an organization that can help them understand purpose outside of the core uh, standard for-profit corporate charter is great for them, but most of our customers care about that as well. Sure. And a lot of the issues they're trying to use Splunk for have, if you really look at the ecosystem of all the tendrils of data and processes and, and interactions, almost any process that you look at winds up traversing hundreds or thousands of different organizations as well as the different data sources. So it's almost natural to lean in from every dimension you can possibly think of to help solve some of these really vexing data problems. I love it. And uh, Doug, I would want to keep you here much, much longer, but I know you have a hard stop coming up. So let's shift gears here and do a bit of a lightning round if you're uh, ready for it. Sure. Favorite nonfiction or fiction book you've read in the last year? Yeah, my team is I, so I know sick of me. you don't read me. as much anymore, but- My yeah. team is so sick of me talking about this, but uh, Yuval Harari and okay. his book yeah, Sapiens. Yeah. Um, and Homo and he's got, he's got a whole bunch of seminal works now, but I just love the thoughtfulness and innovation that he brought. Uh, Shared narratives, yep. right? I mean, yeah, it's uh, it's so big. I feel like we're not even starting to explore that yet, what that could mean in the future. We're like, What's the future of myth? What are more positive myths? We haven't really created them yet, but we will. Um, Joseph so, Campbell, by the way, a myth. Uh, I love it. <laughs> yeah, the hero's myth. journey. Yeah. Power, uh, the uh, Bill Moyers. The hero's journey, inter- yes. Uh, Bill Moyers interview, right? Right. With, uh, yeah, so, so, so good. What about, I know your time is super tap these days. You're very, very busy. How are you thinking about spending time with your family, your spouse? How are you thinking about unplugging? Because this is uh, a challenge for many people, but as the CEO of a publicly traded company, it's pretty tough. I think it's easy to say as a CEO, but I think for all of us, it is. That the yeah. expe- that blend between these devices we carry on, carry around with us and work makes it almost impossible to separate the two unless you're willing to separate the two. Right. And uh, I got a lesson 14 years ago or so as I was going through divorce that the only way you're going to make time for family is if you make time for family. And the fear is you know, if I leave work at five o'clock because I've got an event or mm. I say no to an opportunity because it's going to make create a hardship in my family life, I'll never recover. And I need to be in the middle of something to be relevant. Sure. Um, and I think what I learned through that process is the, actually the more boundaries you put up and the more clear you are, the happier teams tend to be. That they know when to get you and you turn over more work to them yeah. that they're longing for. Usually, it depends. They may have their own issues. And the only way that I've been, been able to strike that work-life balance is to be a lot more dictatorial with my schedule and sure. make sure that I treat family dinner or a morning workout or a family vacation with the same degree of focus as I would a critical customer meeting or an internal review. I love that. That's really good advice. Final question here before we uh, part ways. What is a thought experiment or a challenge or uh, a final call to action that you would leave with our listeners? I think that as we've talked about from loving to learn and really enjoying that act of being curious and you know, listening to me as podcasts as you possibly can and being broad-based in consumption of that learning, how can each of us use the data that's swirling around us that feels completely either overwhelming or useless to, with our curiosity, gather and advocate for some appropriately fact-based and relevant solutions 
given the multitude of opportunity that we have on moving our species forward, moving the earth around us forward in a healthy healthy way and healthy approach. We all have got to become much more conversing with data and and stealing or borrowing one of Yuval Harari's lines. We are natural story processors and have used that to help our species evolve and be such social, flexible animals. Let's get some better data in those stories. Yeah, how do we we marry logic processing and data processing with those stories? Because the story is such a powerful vehicle for us, but data can, can take it in many different directions. So our aim at Splunk is to make every citizen an effective data citizen, someone that knows where to find data, how to play with data, and when they get those aha moments, what to do with those moments so that they can actually do something effective with data. It's wonderful. I'm, I'm excited about that happening. Doug, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a blast. And for everyone listening, we'll see you next time. Thank you, Chad. I really enjoyed being here. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, their customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.